Today we're continuing our series called Unstoppable Church. And throughout this series, we've been saying that people have a tendency to get nervous for God. Uh, They see some of the obstacles facing the church and they wonder whether he's up for the task or whether they are. And so in this series, we're going back to the early church. We're looking at, at some of the challenges that they faced and how God in his power uh, pressed them forward, sent them out on mission, and allowed them to overcome. Uh, today we're talking about an obstacle that uh, we all face in our lives. It's the obstacle of obedience, the obstacle of putting God first before others. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with uh, the uh, Milgram obedience experiments. Uh, In 1961, Yale University psychologist by the name of Stanley Milgram took 40 men and uh, he put them through uh, an experiment that would test what what their internal moral compass would do uh, under pressure, under direction. Uh, What they did was they had uh, an experiment whereby they were told by a... uh, what was supposedly a scientist uh, to give electric shocks to the learner subjects every time they made a mistake. And every time, they, every time they made a mistake, they gave increasingly higher electrical shocks to those, uh, to those subjects uh, until those shocks got higher and higher and higher. Uh, the catch for the experiment was that uh, the supposed learners were in fact actors and uh, they, were, they were not actually being shocked, but they were, they were pretending as if they were. In that experiment, all 40 of those uh, uh, subjects not only gave the shocks to, to those learners when they made the mistakes, but they um, all got up to 350, a 350 volt shock. Uh, an additional 65% of that group got to 400 volt, uh, 450 volts, which was a, a shock that would have been lethal had it been real. And that was despite the fact that the actors were, were screaming, crying out, banging on the walls, pleading for them to stop. It was a troubling experiment and gave a troubling picture of human behavior. But what do you do with that? Is it really possible that we could quite easily be turned into a room full of torturers? Uh, is it possible that two out of the three, two out of three people in this room under the right conditions could be made to commit murder? And if those things are true, if this is part of our uh, fallen nature, how on earth are we going to, as, uh, as believers, as a church, how are we going to cope in a world where obedience to God is less and less popular and there's more and more pressure to compromise what we believe to be true? Even if we can face those challenges, how do we raise children who will be able to face those very same pressures? Well, today we get some help from uh, a man who is famous for his wilting under pressure, we'll say. 
we get some help from the Apostle Peter, whose most famous incident is denying Jesus in the face of pressure. And that was pressure that came for some polite questions from some servant girls and commoners. That same person went on to face the questioning, interrogation, persecution, and eventual uh, death at the hands of powerful religious authorities. And he did so with courage, with conviction, and with uh, the strength that God provided. Today, we're going to see and learn from him how we can do likewise, how we can face some of those same challenges and in the midst of them, put God first. So if you have your Bible, I want to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We're looking at verses 27 to 42. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a, a black uh, Bible in the rack in the seat in front of you or near, uh, near you there, and we're on page 859. Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 42. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of God. Now, this passage gives us three reasons why we should put God first uh, and to, to, to do so uh, when we are, are tested and challenged. And the first is put God first because he gives you what this world can't. It doesn't matter uh, what, what your client promises you. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter the support that your friend might offer you. If you can get those things and find that you have traded away what only God can provide, what is that that in the end actually left you with? 
So we put God first because he gives you what this world can't. Now, when the scene begins, we're back in the temple, continuing on from where we were last week, and we know that the stakes are high because the apostles here have been arrested for the second time in as many days. The Sanhedrin council have them lined up in front of them, and this is the same group that has just recently uh, sentenced Jesus to be crucified, so we know that the, uh, the pressure is on. The high priest speaks in verse 28. He says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You can feel the emotion in the air. He, he can't even uh, use Jesus' name. He just calls him this man. Interestingly, he doesn't mention anything about the jailbreak. He doesn't ask how was it that you were, you were imprisoned last night? You showed up in the temple this morning. He doesn't make any reference to that, presumably because it would raise details and get into a line of discussion that he just wants to avoid. He describes Jerusalem here. He talks of you having filled it with your teaching. It's like it's a container and they have just filled the place up and, and they, they can't stop talking about Jesus. And he's worried about the spread. He's worried about this teaching that uh, is being spread. And in particular, he, he's worried that they're making it seem like they're responsible for Jesus's death, which is an incredible claim for the high priest to be making, an incredible thing for him to be accusing them of because they clearly were responsible for Jesus' death, they did uh, cast that sentence just uh, a little while earlier. And yet, the pressure is there. For for former fishermen to be standing before such a powerful body of people to be interrogated like this would be terrifying. If you and me, if we were there, we would be feeling the pressure of the moment. We would see this room full of over 70 people with their eyes focused upon us, and we're having to answer for what we have done. Because it's Peter who is standing before them and knowing his past, knowing how he has denied Jesus in his past, we're wondering what's going to happen this time. And we're not all that hopeful of how he might respond. Amazingly, in verse 29, he and the other apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men. There's incredible courage and conviction. But notice where it comes from. Watch how it is that this man who was previously denying Jesus is able to stand for him so boldly. In verse 30, uh, Peter essentially says, you hung Jesus on a tree, God raised him from the dead. He's speaking to the sense that they had tried to humiliate him, God had exalted him. They had tried to snuff out his life. God renewed his life. And essentially he's saying, we're following a savior who promises eternal life. What could you possibly do to us? What, what could we possibly fear? Then in 31, he says something even more interesting. He says, God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So first he describes Jesus at the right hand of the Father as Lord, as Savior. 
But then he describes him as giving two things. Uh, he, 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 he gives uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, many of you probably had assumed that Jesus only gave one of those things. Many of you probably assumed Jesus gives forgiveness of sins, and that is a wonderful gift. It is amazing that a holy God would wipe out, pardon, and forgive the sins of unholy people for Jesus' sake. But you and I need something more than that. You and I need something deeper than that because our biggest problem is that we don't see our sin. And even when we are presented with our sin, we want to hold on to it. We don't want to let go of it. And so it says that he gives us something greater. Jesus is the savior who grants me repentance. He helps me to see my sin and release my grip on it. And often we think we're solely responsible for that. that that's, that's kind of our job. This is something else is God's job. But he, he is described here as giving that as our gift. Religion can't grant me repentance. A high priest can't grant me repentance. A, a sermon can't grant me repentance. Only God can grant me repentance and he does so, and he does so powerfully in our lives. Then in 32, uh, verse 32, Peter says, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Here he's saying, God gives his own spirit to us. To those who stand with him, God is pleased to give the Holy Spirit. And, and, and again, if we just had a God who opened our eyes to our sin, who helped us to release our grip on it and forgave us, that would be wonderful. But I need help to continue to walk in the path that he set for me. I can't do that on my own. I can't live the life that God has called me to, no matter how many New Year's resolutions I make, no matter how many good intentions I have, I need I need power, I need strength, I need help. And so God is pleased to give the Holy Spirit to walk in the path that he has set for us. That sanctifying spirit, the one who purifies us from the inside out, the one who changes us and transforms us and gives us that power that we need. Now, it's easy to read a passage like this and think, well, those are great things to remember if I ever get dragged before the Sanhedrin and am charged to stop uh, doing these things. But, would, but obviously, we don't want to leave it in that context. Each of us faces times in our lives when we're the ones who've been put on the hot seat, when we are called to answer for our, uh, our beliefs, when we, our convictions are tested, and uh, we need to know how to respond. These are the, the, the things that we want to remember when our convictions are tested, when we are feeling the pressure of the moment, when there's pressure to back down on your faith or your convictions, when it's easier to act like Peter when he denied Jesus rather than Peter uh, when he went on to die for him. We remember he gives eternal life and forgiveness. 
He gives repentance and the power to follow him. And he gives us his spirit that we might walk in faithfulness. When you're tempted to sin, when you are tempted to compromise what you know to be right, remember what God has given you. Remember that he gives you gifts that this world cannot, cannot speak to and cannot compare with. Remember the gifts that, that we have in him. So we've said that we put God first because he gives what this world can't, but we also put God first because it's painful to oppose him. God isn't like a grumpy old man who just gets mad when we don't do things his way. He's more like a fast-moving Mack truck that loves us too much to let us play in traffic. He doesn't want us to get, uh, get run over. So put God first because it's painful to oppose him. Now, by the time we get to verse 33, the religious authorities are, uh, they've got to the point where they've had enough. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The only other time in the, in the New Testament where this word enraged is used, they actually do end up killing someone. And so we understand here, they've reached a point where the threat is real, the stakes are high. At that point, a Pharisee named Gamaliel motions for the apostles, first of all, to be put outside. He wants to speak with them, and he doesn't want the, the, the optics or the emotion of the moment to get the better of them. Apostles are put outside. He, he stands to speak. Now, Gamaliel was the most famous rabbi of the day. Uh, we know him as the former uh, mentor or tutor of the Apostle Paul. He was the head of the sect of, of the Pharisees. And although Jesus has a lot of strong words for the Pharisees in the Gospels, he, he calls them where there's hypocrisy. Uh, he calls them out on that. Uh, he deals with the fact that they follow not only the scriptures, but the oral traditions. But by the time you get to the book of Acts, the Pharisees are actually the group who are more sympathetic to Jesus and his followers than the Sadducees. And so it's important that he stands to speak and uh, gives a, uh, an alternate voice to the opinion of the high priest at this point. In verses 36 to 37, he refers to two rebellions at times in Israel's recent history where charismatic leaders rose up, gathered a group of people around them, made a little bit of noise and, and uh, a splash for a little while, and then fizzled out. And the implication is, uh, if, if this is going to be that, then there's nothing to worry about. In verses 38 to 39, he makes his basic point. Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. He's saying, if this is a human undertaking or made by human plans, then it will come to nothing. But if it's of God then we need to be worried about this. We need to be worried about this if it's of God, because if we stand in the way of this, then there is going to be painful consequences for all of us. And here he's setting up one of the basic tensions of the book of Acts. What, 
what Luke wants us to feel as we're reading through the book is to, to see him presenting evidence. Is God on the side of these followers of Jesus or is he on the side of the religious authorities who are trying to stop them? Is this of man or is it of God? And, and so we're supposed to be um, seeing the evidence in the book of Acts and drawing a conclusion of, uh, of how to evaluate this movement of uh, Jesus' disciples. But notice how Gamaliel understands moral decisions and obedience. When we fail to do what the word says, he says we are opposing God. We are not just uh, acting in a way that he doesn't like. And the problem isn't primarily that we might feel guilty or bad for what we've done. It goes deeper than that. God has designed this universe and he is carrying out his purposes and he is giving us warnings that we don't get in the way. It is like God is a, a fast-moving train and his commands are, are, are not the barkings of a, a, a grumpy person who doesn't want people to not do things his way. They're, it's like the whistle of a, a, a freight train warning people not to play in the tracks. And so this idea that, that disobedience is actually opposing God, standing in his way, getting in the way of his purposes, and his purposes will prevail. It's important to remember that when someone is pushing you to cross a line that you know God doesn't want you to cross. It's important that we remember that when someone is being slandered and we're tempted to jump in. It's important to remember that when your convictions about, uh, about gender, about sexuality, about uh, any of the, the hot buttons of our world today are tested and you know it'd just be easier to go along with what everybody else is saying. It'd be easier to go along with what everybody else is doing. But in doing, if in doing so, we are in fact opposing God, the warning is that we are actually putting our, ourselves in a place of great danger. Even though God is a gracious God, his purposes will not be turned back. He doesn't reorchestrate the universe just so that we don't get hurt. And, and so uh, that, that warning is there. As it says in Proverbs 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Doesn't matter how persuasive your professor might seem. Doesn't matter how passionate your friend might be. If we are standing in the way of the purposes of God, there will be consequences. It is painful. God doesn't take detours. He is telling us his direction. He is telling us his, his plans and our purposes. And if we stand in his way, there will be consequences for us. So we've said we put God first because he gives you what this world can't. We, we put God first because it's painful to oppose him. And finally, we put God first because his approval means more than anything. Like those subjects in uh, the Milgram obedience experiments, often when we cross lines that we believe to be and we know to be wrong, we often do so for the approval of someone. We want their acceptance. We want them to like us. We want them to think well of us. 
But the problem is, when we do so, we are doing so with our eyes on the wrong person's approval. We're looking in the wrong direction. And so uh, the, 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 the challenge to us here is to put God first because his approval means more than anything. Now, the high priest and the council take Gamaliel's advice. Cooler heads have prevailed, and uh, they decide in verse 40 to release the apostles. But not before beating them and warning them not to speak in Jesus' name. Now, it would be very easy to just read on past that, that verse and gloss over that, but we, we won't understand what comes after that if we do. When it says that they were beaten, you might think maybe they just got their hands slapped. Maybe they were just uh, insulted or given a little tap. We actually have detailed historical records, not only of how these beatings took place, but actual instructions on how they were to be carried out. So likely the apostles were lined up one by one. Their hands would have been tied to posts on either side then they would have been stripped of their clothes so that their chest and their back was bare. And somebody would be given the task of taking a uh, a long whip with three leather cords, and they were charged with striking the person with all their might. Uh, They were always given these, these beatings in sets of three, because they were to give two on the back and then one on the front. Two on the back, one on the front. And likely, often, in cases like this, they would have been given 39 lashes. It was a beating that left many people dead at the end of it. They would have, have, they are experiencing at this point excruciating punishment. But in addition to that, While they were being beaten, it was prescribed that somebody uh, would would read from the book of Deuteronomy. They would read Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting at verse 58. And I'll just read a couple of the verses. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. Picture yourself as one of those apostles receiving that beating as you're hearing those words and just feeling the weight of that. This is like torture plus shame and disgrace plus reprogramming. And and you have to... As you put yourself in this situation, you have to think, okay, how am I going to respond? What what would I do having experienced such pain and injustice and just the the humiliation of that? What's going through your mind? What would you do? Maybe you'd think, I'm going to get a good lawyer. I'm going to make them pay for what they did. I hope somebody had their phone out and was recording this. Like I, I hope we have physical evidence. Uh, maybe you'd, you'd stage a protest. Maybe you'd gather around all, of your, all the people that you knew and all the people you could convince 
You'd, you'd do a, a, a protest at the entrances to the temple. Shut them down. Let's make them pay. At the very least, you'd, you'd get angry and make a rant, right? You, anybody who would listen to you, you'd down with the government, down with these authorities, down with, we've got to make them pay. Get these people out of their offices. That, those are the things that are going through your mind, right? As you've experienced this, as you are feeling the weight of this, what do they do? Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They are cut open front and back, bleeding, bruised, and they're rejoicing. It's like it's prom night and they've just kissed their date. They're, they're, they're exhilarated. They're, uh, although they are still feeling the, the pain of that moment, there is joy in the midst of that. What's going on there? Where does that come from? Well, the apostles had heard Jesus when he taught on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now they'd heard that. But if we're honest, it probably wasn't their favorite part of the message. They they weren't crazy about that part. So much so that when Jesus announced to them, and he announced to them three times that he was going to Jerusalem, and when he arrived there, he was going to face persecution, he was going to face uh, torture, he was going to face eventual death. When they heard that, they said, they tried to stop him. You're, 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 you're just being negative, Jesus. You're, you, you're, you're talking in a way that just, you should be more optimistic, You shouldn't be talking like that. And so they were unprepared when the day came, when Jesus was arrested, when he was taken before them. Yes, Peter denied Jesus in that moment. But additionally, the other apostles, the other disciples, they ran away. Everybody abandoned Jesus. And, and, And so they have felt... And they have seen not only Jesus' teachings, but they've seen their failure to follow those teachings. But then what happened after that, they saw how Jesus suffered for them. They saw the cost that he paid, the way that he responded in that moment on the cross. They saw that he was not, not only willing to suffer for them, but he was willing to die for them. And it deeply moved them. They, were regret, they regretted their shallow response to Jesus. And now with an opportunity to respond differently, they saw this not as having been evil, having won the day. They saw this instead as a privilege and an opportunity to express to Jesus how much they they, they loved him and how grateful that they were for all that he had done for them. And so this 
this time was, as painful as it was, an opportunity to count the cost and express their faith and their love for Jesus Christ. And so they rejoiced. They felt joy in the midst of terrible pain and suffering. Peter would later say, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I want you to take that understanding of joy in the midst of suffering and listen to the words of Bob Dylan when he was interviewed. Uh, it was a magazine interview done at the beginning of 2022. About a year ago, he was asked whether he'd ever felt real happiness. Listen to what he says. Well, we all do at certain points, but it's like water. It slips through your hands. As long as you're suffering, you can only be so happy. How can, it be, how can a person be happy if he has misfortune? Now, I usually encourage you to remember God's word, and that's a good thing to do. But I think it'd be also helpful in this case for you to remember Bob Dylan's words. For you to remember his words as a reminder of the definition of happiness according to this world. Remember him next time you're pressured by a friend or tempted by the group. Remember him next time you want to give your money, your time, or your body to this world's definition of happiness. Remember that this world's version of happiness is like water. It slips through your fingers. It is there in happy times, but it doesn't last. It's like chewing gum. It, the taste is gone before you've really ever gotten into it. It, it. it doesn't last. As soon as difficult times come, that, that sense of elation goes with it. It goes through your fingers. That's what you're buying every time you choose what this world offers rather than what Jesus Christ offers. The love of Christ is different than that. It's different than the chewing gum version of happiness. The love of Christ was perfected in his death for you. It was forged in his suffering for you. The love of Christ was shown at the cross, but it led to resurrection. It leads to eternal hope. His is a love that can bring us joy and suffering. His is a love that changes us. It matures us. It fills us with a hope that can't be extinguished. So put him first. Don't settle for the chewing gum version of happiness. Don't settle for the happiness that's like water. The happiness that Bob Dylan says just slips through your fingers. Who can hold on to anything like that? And lay hold of the, the joy that is eternal, the joy that he's pleased to give to those who receive his gifts in faith and lay hold of them and trust them and lift them up because of their love for their Savior. Let's look to him now in prayer. Father in heaven, 
you call us sheep, and so often that's how we act. We just follow the other, the other sheep. We blindly uh, go where they lead. Give us the courage to listen to the voice of the shepherd, to train our minds on him. Thank you for giving us forgiveness. Thank you for giving us repentance. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit and the hope of eternity. Would you give us a gift of repentance afresh this morning? Would you help us to see the sins that bind us? Would you help us to release the grip that they hold on us? And give us the courage to stand for you. Help us to speak for you. And when our obedience is tested, may we choose the joy that you alone can give and not settle for what this world would offer instead. For we ask you in Jesus' name.